This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 63. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hello, hello. Elaine from Hong Kong wrote in and asked me if I could do an episode on shame. And I thought that was such an excellent idea that I immediately started working on it. Now, the work we're going to talk about is by a rock star researcher called Brene Brown. Her TED Talks have millions of downloads, so a few of you might actually know her. Today, I'm also going to talk a bit more about my personal experiences with shame simply because... What makes shame so powerful is that we don't talk about it normally. Shame, according to Brené, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of connection and belonging. Shame is an epidemic, but because of the very way it makes us feel, we don't address it. And therefore, it's easy to think that you're alone in your shame. So shame is this inner voice that says, you're never good enough. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you're trying this? And shame has actually quite a few negative effects, such as addiction, depression, suicide, bullying, violence, aggression, and eating disorders. Now, what's interesting is that guilt is inversely correlated and that's a sciencey way of saying it's actually kind of like the opposite so if you feel guilt you are less likely to experience addiction depression suicide bullying violence aggression and eating disorders and the reason is that guilt is tied to a situation the difference according to Brene Brown is this in guilt we say I did something bad shame on the other hand, means I am bad. A lot of social emotions such as guilt or embarrassment have developed to ensure that we don't violate the values which make living together even possible. They serve as powerful reminders to ensure that we don't become too selfish. Only psychopaths feel no shame whatsoever. However, it's important that we learn to make that distinction between feeling guilty, where we really did something that we shouldn't have, and always feeling unworthy and full of shame. Both sexes experience shame the same. However, the shame triggers are very different. For women, shame is often tied to the expectation to achieve it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see how much effort and energy you're putting into it. Uh, which, you know, on the other hand means like you should be smiling and looking awesome while being superwoman. So here's what women have to do to fit female stereotypical expectations. Women have to be nice, thin, modest, and use all their resources for appearance. So if you're a woman, take a moment to think about these shame triggers. Have you been called bossy when you asserted yourself? Does the fact that you probably don't look like a Victoria's Secret model cause shame? How pronounced is the need to display modesty 
which is often the reason that women have difficulty knowing and acknowledging their strengths, actually. And finally, the last point about the appearance is not just about your personal appearance. It's also about whether your home is perfectly orderly and whether your family appears to be a good family and so on. That's what's meant with appearance. The biggest shame triggers for men, or I should say biggest shame trigger, is to be perceived as weak in all its variation. So here's what men have to do to fit male expectations. Display emotional control at all times. Put work first. Pursue status. And be tough. Now, I would like to make very clear that none of these gender-specific gender shame triggers are the problem of that gender alone. For example, just because I'm a woman doesn't mean that Male shame, shame triggers don't concern me because I have men in my life, family members, friends, clients, people at work, and if we put the men in our lives under pressure to keep climbing the career ladder at all costs, if we only date super successful men and let god-awful but successful men treat us like crap because of their status, we contribute to this problem. And it's not something we want to contribute to because in cases of men, this kind of shame can actually lead to suicide. And it's the very ones who are the most sensitive, who value other things besides work and status. And opposed violence are likely to suffer the most. The same is true for men helping the women in their life to transcend these shame triggers. So what do we do when we feel shame? Well, we move away or withdraw, or we display dominance, or we conform to expectations very demonstratively. What makes shame grow is secrecy, silence, and judgment, both our own judgment and the judgment of others. Empathy is the antidote to shame. And if we remember that shame triggers, this might be difficult for men because empathy and vulnerability go against the very values that traditionally define men as men. However, taking emotional risks, exposing ourselves to the right people, facing uncertainty, is actually the most accurate measurement of courage occurring according to Brown's findings. So if you want to help others, maybe in particularly men, it might be helpful to highlight the courage aspect that comes with displaying vulnerability. So how can we change our capacity to deal with shame constructively? Well, Brown has developed a shame resilience program. The cornerstones are, number one, recognizing and accepting vulnerability in the moment. Number two, make the connection between the shame trigger and how that relates to societal exp expectations and norms. Number three, seeking and giving support through empathetic relationships. And if you're interested in to learn more about empathy, I encourage you to check out episode 47. That's a whole episode devoted to empathy. Number four, learn to distinguish between shame, guilt, embarrassment, and humiliation. 
and talk about it in a way that emphasizes the unfortunate situation and not the kind of language that implies that you or somebody else has a bad character. Now, Bernays' work is very rooted in the American context, but what about other cultures? Well, actually, it could be argued that some shame, that shame plays an even bigger role in other cultures. A um, dear friend of mine from the Middle East said that without addressing shame, you can't really achieve anything psychologically because it's just such a big topic. And I personally have very little experience with the Middle East, but my mom is half Indian, and Asian countries are huge on shame. It's not just about your personal shame. Your failings bring shame over the whole family, including everybody's unborn kids. Shame is used as a weapon. It's used to make sure that everybody falls in line, and people accept unhappiness and misery if it means that they can escape the misery of displeasing others. In Japan, they once did tests where they showed that people movie clips evoking strong emotions. In one condition, people were watching the movie together. In that case, everybody from Japan kept their composure. So they were filming the faces, just so that you can imagine. American students, on the other hand, showed their emotions. From this evidence, it's easy to think that maybe Japanese folks don't experience emotions the same way. And to test whether this is true or not, the researchers showed the same movie clips to individuals sitting in rooms by themselves. And there they saw that Japanese people showed exactly the same emotions as the Americans. So they feel exactly the same, but there's the cultural need to mask emotions in an attempt to save face. And if we think back to what we heard about the male shame triggers, it might be true that the things that we talked about, you know, the Japanese students might also to a certain degree apply to men in general. In a more dramatic example, Malcolm Gladwell talked about a series of plane crashes of some Korean airline, I don't remember which one. And what they found was that in all cases, lower ranked employees had noticed that something was wrong. But telling the boss would have involved lots of people losing face. And they rather went to their death than to, to experience the shame of breaking convention. And if that doesn't speak to the power of shame, I don't know what does. I mean, if you're happy to die instead of saying something that might make you feel uncomfortable, that shows you there, right there how powerful shame really is. When I go to India, by far the comment I get the most from, it doesn't really matter if it's, I mean, maybe not the closest of close family, but pretty much everybody else is how overweight I am and that my mom used to be super skinny. Now, here's the interesting part. When my mom was skinny, she was criticized for being too thin. Now, we're both too fat. So why is that? They want to know. And how does it make me feel to hear that? Well, when I was younger, a teenager, it was a huge source of shame hearing comments like that. They are etched into memory for life. As a teenager, that was, you know, one more thing to add to the reasons why I really hated myself. And I remember distinctly one day I was sitting in a tram and I caught a reflection of myself and I said silently, I hate you. 
Today, I want to give that younger me a hug and tell her the good news. And the good news is that no matter how shitty my days, no matter if it's even a shitty week or year, under no circumstances um, have I ever looked in the mirror in the last 10 years and thought that I hate myself. Now, even if I have a really bad hair day or my face is rounder or my skin is freak, uh, you know, fucked up or whatever it is, you know, when I look at the mirror, in the end, the person looking back exudes love, amusement, or at the very least, some compassionate understanding for my troubles. And here's how I got to that. Here's, here's how I got to that, that these things don't bother me the, the way they used to bother me when I was a teenager. Although they still bother me in terms of, like, I don't understand what people are trying to get out of it. It's like, do they think I don't have a mirror or no eyes or I don't know. Um, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of people simply have nothing more interesting to talk about, which is kind of sad. But here's how I got to that. Now, I realized that under no circumstances could I ever win the game of conforming to the female stereotype. The last thing, the last time I was thin was when I was seven years old. So that's not going to happen. To this day, I don't have the slightest interest in cosmetics or fashion. So I don't fit the, the stereotype where you're supposed to really care about your appearance that much either. I'm never, I, I, I don't know, I'm like super bored when I'm dragged to a, to a store. I, I don't like buying stuff, especially clothes. And I'm actually less bored looking at a ceiling than buying clothes shopping. So again, another stereotype. And sometimes I'm modest and nice, but sometimes I'm not. And so, yeah, I, I just decided, you know what? You don't really have the, a shot at being the perfect woman according to these ideas. Even if I wanted to play this game, how would I know that I'm succeeding? How often? I mean, what's the criteria? How often comp people compliment you on your figure or your handbag? And when do I ever have enough? When do I know that it's enough? Under which circumstances am I allowed to be happy? The thing is that the answer with all these questions always comes from the outside. The reward for conformity is actually nothing. People just leave you alone. They don't say, well done that you never made this family lose face in all these years. In this game, people are only proud of you if you give them something they can brag about with their friends. What kind of love is that? That way, I'm extremely fortunate. Both my parents went to great lengths to make me understand that they love me whether I got good grades or not. And I was actually, believe it or not, really bad at school. Until I was about 15 years old. So, I felt stupid for most of my childhood. But my parents made me understand that that didn't make any difference in how much they loved me. And, you know, to this day, it's kind of funny. You know, I can have great success and you know my mom is happy but it's not that it impresses her because she already loves me there's no need to impress her and that's kind of cool believe me i didn't give my parents anything to brag about until i was 17 because it was only i was only good at soccer and that's not exactly what is expected of girls the people who are hardest to please are also usually the people who make us feel the shittiest you know the price you pay for conformity is that you can't 
have the energy to pursue anything remotely interesting because if you have to check your makeup and outfits every five minutes, do all the housework, be good enough at sex so that men want to be with you but not so good that they could accuse you of being slut, pursue a career, take care of the sick and old relatives, when will you have time to do something that you find worthwhile? And uh, pleasing others constantly to avoid feeling shame is a job that just requires more than 24 hours a day. So here's the price I pay for stepping out of this ridiculous game. Sometimes things get uncomfortable because I'm not afraid to say things that fall outside the norm. Sometimes I have no idea what to do, say, with people, you know, in small talk situations. Sometimes I feel misunderstood. And I'm not particularly crazy about any activity where you have to walk around in a bathing suit. I frequently encounter people who think I'm a closeted homosexual because they have never seen or heard me talk about a guy. Truth is actually way less exciting. Most of the times, the guys just ask out another woman. So, you see the price you pay for stepping out of pleasing others might be high. I will not deny that. But to me, the price you pay is way higher. Because it leads straight into depression, addiction, and all these other things that we talked about in the beginning. Life without these things is actually pretty good. And I know that because I've been on both ends of it. Here's what I get in return for not letting others shaming me into to conformity. The ability to form deep and authentic connections, often instantly. Peace of mind. People who are only interested in shallow crap barely talk to me, so the conversations I have are usually interesting, or at least fun. The freedom to really explore what I treasure in life and building my life around those priorities. I can try stuff out, because the conformity police is not happy with me anyway. So the knowledge that while I'm overweight, I can still run longer than most people. Comfort. Other comfort I can comfort other people because I'm not scared of their shame or sorrow. I can give them hope by modeling that an alternative way of life is possible. I can delve into the world's most interesting teachings and bring them together in a way that not only benefits me, but inspires people. And until now, over you know, 128 countries in the world, which is awesome, you know, thanks for that, guys, because I, I feel really blessed. And that's so much cooler than having somebody say, that's an awesome handbag. <laughs> and yeah, nothing against handbags, but to me, it doesn't really measure up. So we all need validation. The thing is that if we need it all the time and all, always from outside, we are desperate for others in a way that makes enjoying a rich life really hard. If we get lots of it from doing things that we feel is important or enjoyable, even nobody else thinks so, it will always be worth it, at least for us, regardless of the results we get. And of course, the world ends up respecting people who dare to do their own thing. One important thing I haven't seen in Brown's talks is this misconception that without shame, we would become bad people that it keeps us in line. So if we are not punished for bad grades, we will become alcoholic weed underachievers, floating through life, disappointing everything. But this idea rests on several assumptions. This idea that we kind of have to use negativity to get good results is based on the several assumptions, and they are that motivation comes from fear, 
Now that is true. Fear is a very powerful motivator. But if you let it be your main motivator in your life, a peaceful life will be very hard to attain. We assume that we will be left behind. Cutthroat economies can make it very hard to escape this one. And we assume that our inner animal or Satan or whatever will only be overcome if we police each other. Otherwise, we will descend into the swamp of immorality and never engage in anything noble. Now, here are a few thoughts to consider when it comes to all that. Desire is a driving force that is just as potent as fear. We cannot only experience desire towards food or sex, but towards engaging in things which we deem worthy. When I went to the library after work for eight years, people thought it was discipline. But it was a thirst and desire for knowledge, for understanding the world and myself that made me go. Discipline would have lasted me maybe three weeks, not eight years. So if we let our desire pull us forward, the things we deem worthy, we need less fear to motivate us. And the vast majority of people would feel bored and or exhausted of nonstop, you know, food and sex and drug orgies and We get used to these so-called hedonic pleasures. We need bigger and bigger doses, and even then the boredom sets in. Actually, that is a great mechanism because it shows us, it motivates us in our bodies, in our minds, that if we fixate on these things, we will not be happy. We, something inside of us wants us to do something more rewarding because otherwise you know, boredom and all these negative emotions wouldn't be screaming at us all the time. And what about others? Well, if we selfishly pursue what excites us, what does that mean for our relationships? Well, when you're not 24-7 engaged in pleasing others, you actually have time to develop real compassion, kindness, and love. You become interesting because you're not looking You're not necessarily like everybody else. You might disappoint people, but often people are surprisingly receptive to clearly communicated boundaries. When you live the life of conformity, you either disappoint people in any case, or you feel you might disappoint them any minute. If you free yourself of that anxiety, you can relax, and people like to be around relaxed people. So... Elaine, that's my take on shame. I hope it was helpful to you and to anybody else who is interested in the topic. Now, I have no idea whether you're listening, Mr. Ben Dickinson. I wanted to say a huge thank you to you. Ben Dickinson is a writer at Elle magazine. And he writes, wrote an entire article about the Positive Psychology podcast titled, Can a Podcast Make You Happier in Just 14 Days? I'm incredibly grateful because he has helped people to find a podcast who probably otherwise would have not never found it. Also, he has provided me, the, the girl who doesn't know how to use Rouge at 32, a funny story to tell because believe me, If you know me in person, you would understand how funny it is that a fashion of all magazines would write about 
my podcast and me. If you're curious to check out that article, you can go to strengthsphoenix.com slash L. So that's S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-S-P-H-O-E-N-I-X dot com slash E-L-L-E. Now, we'll have a look at the reviews which came in in December, and the reason I'm so late is because I get them in a once-monthly email. And if you stick around to the end, there'll actually be a little freebie for you, so you might want to be stay tuned. The first review comes is titled Positively Perfect. It's from the UK, and it's from 7RGTHYJ7KE543. Yeah, I hope you're spelling B. If not, um, yeah, I hope whoever you are that you know that I'm talking about you. It says each episode touches upon a different aspect of positive psychology or interviews a prominent figure in the field. Kristen does her best to include the most interesting information on each topic and condenses it into a digestible chunk of listening joy. Listening joy. I like that. And I'm glad that's it's digestible because sometimes people are a bit overwhelmed with all the science and all of that. So thanks for this positively perfect um, review. Then the next one is from Kim RB in Canada. Hi, Kim. We had a little chat. So hi, and thank you for the review. It says subscribe to this podcast now in caps. This podcast is fantastic. Kristen provides a welcome mix of academic and practical knowledge about positive psychology. She provides well-researched and easy-to-understand information on specific and timely positive psychology topics. I am loving this one, and I know you will too. Thanks a lot, Kim, and I hope things are going well for you right now. I won't say more, but I actually remember what we talked about. And last but not least, Pompeii Student, that's a cool username, from the UK, wrote, Such an interesting podcast, so happy that I stumbled across this informative and explained very well, smiley face. Well, thank you, all of you. Thanks. As always, I'm super grateful. And now I don't know why the the comments, the emails, they, they have picked up. There are more and more of them are coming in. Sometimes I wake up in the morning to an email like the one from Elaine. And yeah, it feels it feels so great. And you know, sometimes I go to work afterwards and if something sucks, you can just think about, you know what? You know, no matter what happens today, some people are just, you know, they are grateful and they're happy and they share their joy with you. And that's cool. Now, on a totally different note... I have decided to get a sponsorship to cover the costs of producing this podcast. And I have been both a podcast and audiobook listener since 2006. Currently, I have nearly a thousand hour worth worth of audiobooks on my computer. And that is after deleting the books that I don't like. So yeah, that gives you an idea of how often and how many audiobooks I listen to. And since 2010, I've had an Audible membership. 
Now, the reason I'm telling you this is that as a listener of the Positive Psychology Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download if you check out their free 30-day trial. Now, we talked about shame today. If you are interested in shame or vulnerability, I would really urge you to go to the link that I'm just about to tell you and browse for Brene, it's B-R-E-N-E, and then Brown. Browse for her books. The one that I read a while ago is called The Gift of Imperfection. Then there's one on shame. And then there are obviously other audiobooks, which are also really great. I, I like a lot of them, as you know. And yeah, if you go to the link, if you go to strengthsphoenix.com slash audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, um, you can get a 30-day free trial. I'll say that again. It's strengthsphoenix.com slash audible. And really, you can download your book. You can try it out. And I can personally vouch for the fact that once, or not once, I mean, if you have a a membership for like, yeah, six years, seven years, as long as I've had, you know, once in a while you, and you download a book every month, sometimes something doesn't work out. And, you know, Audible is really cool that way. You, You get the credit back immediately. You can give the book back, no questions asked. So I wouldn't have let them sponsor us if if I wouldn't really enjoy what they're doing. So I hope, since you like to listen to cool stuff, I really hope that this can bring some value to your life and it can be a win-win situation for us all. All right, talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.